0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. From early in the coronavirus pandemic, we've considered what might happen with all that premium real estate dedicated to offices no longer being fully utilized. The answer is becoming clear. Plenty of it is being converted into family homes. And our obituaries editor almost always focuses on notable people. Today, she reflects instead on a notable city, Bakhmut in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. Since August, it's been the focus of relentless bombardment. By now, it is a wasteland. But first, It feels like we've talked a lot on the show about Brexit. Dates and deadlines and deals and quite a lot of bad blood. But since Britain finally formally left the EU two years ago, one thing just kept coming up. The border between Northern Ireland, which is in the United Kingdom, and the Republic of Ireland, which is in the European Union. It's complicated, not just for reasons of paperwork, as goods cross from one customs area to another, That border, or the lack of a noticeable border, is a really delicate matter for peace on the island of Ireland. And now it's back in the news, because after much hand-wringing, there might finally be a deal that resolves one of Brexit's most enduring headaches.
2: The United Kingdom and European Union may have had our differences in the past, but we are allies, trading partners and friends something that we've seen clearly in the past year as we joined with others to support Ukraine. This is the beginning of a new chapter in our relationship.
0: Yesterday, Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen held a joint press conference announcing a proposal.
1: We have reached an agreement in principle on the Windsor framework. The Windsor framework lays down new arrangements on Ireland and Northern Ireland. This new framework will allow us to begin a new chapter.
0: The signs so far about this Windsor framework are hopeful, but not everyone is on board with it
2: yet. This could be a big breakthrough in relations between Britain and the EU, and a big breakthrough in Northern Ireland, which has been problematic for Brexit from the beginning.
0: John Pete is The Economist's Brexit editor. We still need one.
2: Rishi Sunak has been negotiating to improve the operation of what's called the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is the Brexit arrangements in Northern Ireland, for several weeks now. But the problem he has is that the Democratic Unionist Party, the biggest unionist party in Northern Ireland, and many of his own conservative backbenchers remain unhappy that Northern Ireland will be part of the European Union single market and will be subject to European Union law. And he may have a difficulty selling this deal to those two groups.
0: So let's wind back a bit. Remind me why this deal was needed.
2: One of the biggest problems over Brexit was the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, because with the UK leaving the European Union, and particularly leaving the European Union single market, there has to be a border somewhere between part of the UK and the rest of the European Union. And it was agreed very early on that we should not have a border with controls between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, because that would upset the peace process. One of the points of the peace process in Northern Ireland was to have totally free access across that border. The difficulty that then presents is if you don't have a border there, where should you have a border? And the choice made by Boris Johnson in his Brexit deal was to have a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, a border in the Irish Sea, where you would have checks on goods going across into Northern Ireland. That itself then presents another difficulty, which is that Northern Ireland feels that they're different now from the rest of the country, and that upsets unionists in Northern Ireland. That was the conundrum that Rishi Sunak has been trying to resolve. And so what does the proposed resolution look like? This deal, the so-called Windsor framework that Rishi Sunak has struck with the European Commission, was basically about a pragmatic attempt to reduce the number of checks and reduce the volume of checks on goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland to the minimum possible, consistent with Northern Ireland remaining part of the European single market, but Great Britain being out of the single market. And what Mr Sunak and the European Commission have done is said, If we're dealing with goods that are only going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland that are at no risk of crossing into the Republic of Ireland, then we'll call that a green lane and we'll have minimal paperwork, minimal checks, and we'll also have a system of trusted traders who we know are not going to try and smuggle goods into the Republic of Ireland and therefore into the European Union, and we'll rely on them to deliver those goods only to Northern Ireland. That's the basis of the whole deal, that we're going to minimise what checks there are on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, and that's what the deal does. The second part of the deal is, because Northern Ireland will remain in the single market, it will continue to have to observe single market rules as they change. And what Mr Sunak has done is set up a mechanism whereby Northern Ireland can be consulted on any future changes to single market rules, and can, in theory, object to them and tell the European Commission, no, we don't want to apply those rules. So that's a sort of democratic consent mechanism now built into this agreement.
0: That sounds straightforward enough. How how is
2: the deal being received? The deal is being received generally very positively. Most parts of Westminster think that this is as good a deal as you can get to reduce the number of checks on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. It's being received quite well. In Brussels, uh, they think, you know, finally we've dealt with this niggling Brexit deal and we can now establish a better relationship with the UK since Britain has left the European Union. And it's being received very well in America, in Washington, where there was a worry that continuing argument over the Brexit arrangements in Northern Ireland could upset the peace process in Northern Ireland. And the US national security spokesman, John Kirby, said yesterday that the Biden administration were very pleased and grateful that this deal had been done.
1: We're grateful that uh, the two sides were able to come up with this uh, Windsor framework, as they call it, this uh, this agreement in keeping with the Northern Ireland protocols. We, th- we believe that uh, this will help um, improve the prosperity uh, of both the EU uh, and the UK uh, and uh, will open up all kinds of now uh, avenues for trade that. Uh, So
2: generally, it's been positively received. The difficulty that Rishi Sunak now faces is that the the biggest unionist party, the Democratic Unionists, are still not quite sure whether they like this deal. And some Tory backbenchers are also saying, we still don't like the fact that Northern Ireland is being treated differently from the rest of the UK. Mr. Sunak now has to try and persuade those groups to accept this deal. And the importance of that is that if the Democratic Unionist Party doesn't like this deal and says no, they will continue to boycott the Northern Irish executive and the power sharing arrangement for Northern Irish government.
0: So the objection then from unionists in Ireland might be where this falls down, seems to be one of the only constituencies where the deal doesn't look like a good deal?
2: Yes. Rishi Sunak, having struck the deal with the European Commission yesterday and called it the Windsor Framework. He then had to go to the House of Commons to explain the deal, and for the most part, most sides of the House of Commons welcomed the deal, but there were still one or two groups that were worrying about it and saying, we need to study the details. And because of that, Mr. Sunak has now gone to Belfast, where he's going to try and persuade the unionist community, particularly the Democratic Unionist Party, that it would be better at least not to come out against the deal, even if they don't want to say positively they endorse this deal. And he still hopes that eventually, if and when the deal is ratified, the Democratic Unionists might say, okay, well, now we've got it the best we can. We should return to the power-sharing executive.
0: You keep saying if. When when will we know?
2: We haven't actually been told when there will be a vote on this deal, technically, because it doesn't involve changing a treaty. It doesn't require parliamentary approval. But Rishi Sunak has made clear that he thinks he should have a vote in the House of Commons to approve the deal that he's struck. And his problem will be if the Democratic Unionists decide they dislike the deal so much that they're going to be against it, that will encourage some... Conservative MPs also to be against it. And it's conceivable that Rishi Sunak could have a problem getting it approved in the House of Commons. The Labour opposition have said, look, we'll help you, we'll vote for the deal too. So he should easily get a majority. But no Prime Minister likes to be in a position where he relies on the opposition to win a majority in the House of Commons. So there's going to be quite a lot of negotiating going on over the next few days before a vote is held, possibly at the end of this week or possibly early next week.
0: So that is to say you think that everyone should take the deal? We could at last put this Northern Ireland question behind us?
2: It would be much better for relations between the UK and the European Union if this deal were ratified because it would remove the biggest single issue that has been jarring the relationship and causing trouble between London and Brussels. Really, ever since the Brexit deal went into force two years ago, there's been two years of arguments over the status of Northern Ireland. Once this is through, if it is through, if it is accepted by all parties, that argument can be forgotten. And there is scope for a new start in the relationship between the UK, which has left the European Union, and the rest of the European Union.
0: John, thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
3: Downtown, the streets
2: are narrow, and great buildings blot out the sky. It's all
0: work and no... Lower Manhattan used to symbolize the fortunes of corporate America. America. A skyscraper boom in the 1920s heralded the rise of the modern office. And as demand for commercial space grew in the 1970s, it fueled the construction of new tower blocks known the world over.
2: The World Trade Center is nothing if not up to date. The Twin Towers rise 110 stories into the air. Each floor of each tower is an acre of space. Robot window washers...
0: But times have changed. In this post-COVID world, employees value flexibility, while employers are turning away from high rents and prime locations. And that is generating a different kind of building frenzy in the Big Apple and elsewhere.
4: We're seeing a boom in construction of luxury apartments.
0: Benjero Mkandawire is our global property correspondent.
4: There's a conversion underway at 25 Water Street, which is America's largest ever office residential conversion. The building, which is located in the heart of New York's financial district, will transform an office skyscraper into 1,300 apartments, ranging from studios to four-bedroom homes. There will be a basketball court, spa, and indoor and outdoor pools. The project represents the acceleration of a long-standing trend in the Big Apple, particularly in the financial district, in which corporate giants are essentially replaced by residents.
0: And so why is that transition speeding up?
4: It's mostly because of hybrid work. The amount of space required for white collar workers was already in decline before the pandemic, but an increase in working from home has left even more buildings vacant.
3: Big tech has an office issue. San Francisco companies are seeing Manhattan's office market having the worst month for new leases. And
0: just how many people in the Bay State are foregoing the in-person office for the home mm-hmm. office? How about that? So
2: let's go to our own- That's
4: increased place. interest in converting older buildings into apartments. In the third quarter of 2022, office vacancies in America soared past 17%. That's the highest in nearly three decades, according to CBRE, which is a property firm. CBRE estimates that almost 20 million square feet of office conversions are expected to hit America's property market this year. And although that's a small fraction of the total supply, it's nearly five times as much as in 2016 when they started to collect data on this trend. And about a third of these conversions become homes.
0: And presumably it's not just happening in New York.
4: Well, much of this is taking place in America's big East Coast cities like Boston and Philadelphia. But this isn't unique to the U.S. It's becoming a trend across the rich world. 8.4% of offices in London sit unoccupied. That's above the long-term average, around 5%. However, the pace of conversion from office space to residential could be quicker. Were it not for a range of challenges that developers face.
0: And what challenges are those?
4: Many issues are practical. The large floor plans of modern office buildings, for example, often lead to poorly lit and badly ventilated spaces in the middle of the building, whereas flats need natural light and windows in each room. Bathrooms, too, are a problem. In offices, they tend to be clustered in one area, which makes plumbing difficult. There is also the issue of red tape, so zoning laws restricting housing in office districts. In some places, heightened density rules or affordable housing requirements raise costs of converting offices. Moody's analytics reckons that less than 3% of the office buildings in New York actually meet the criteria for conversions. And there is the issue of buying out or relocating existing tenants. So it's hard to turn a profit converting offices to homes. That's a problem because empty offices hurt commercial property tax revenues, and they also threaten the business of nearby shops and restaurants.
0: So if cities want to do this, though, is it not just a matter of relaxing some of those rules to kind of roll with the punches here?
4: Exactly. Some cities are relaxing those zoning rules and they're experimenting with different tax breaks. Eric Adams, New York's mayor, has predicted that such incentives will lead to 20,000 new apartments in his city over the next decade. And London plans to use space in its square mile to create 1,500 new homes by 2030. Meanwhile, in Calgary, where one in three offices sits vacant, the city launched a funding scheme for developers willing to convert empty offices And officials have since pledged more than $115 million in grants.
0: So what do you think the long-run story here is going to be? Just how much office space will become residential space?
4: At the moment, these office revamps are still a relatively niche pursuit. But the trend should accelerate as we continue to see falling commercial property values, empty office cubicles, and growing political support for property conversions. Lower Manhattan actually gives us an idea of what the future for other struggling office hubs might look like if they get this right. The 1987 stock market crash left nearly one in three offices in New York vacant. Tax incentives were used then to entice developers into converting aging office blocks into homes, and the September 11th attacks sped up that process. As a result, today 83,000 people live in Lower Manhattan up from fewer than 700 in the 1970s. The neighborhood is family-friendly, and it's no longer just a financial center. There are playgrounds and people walking their dogs and an outdoor rink for ice skaters in the winter. And even as Wall Street firms have relocated, a more creative collection of tenants like Condé Nast and Group M, the media giants, have moved in. So while some office blocks may be dying, city centers don't have to.
0: Vingero, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me. Ocupants actually destroyed Bahamut, another city of Donbass.
3: Every
1: night since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, President Vladimir Zelensky has addressed the nation.
0: ANRO is the Economist's obituaries editor.
1: And recently, his mantra has been Bakhmut holds. Bakhmut was a town in the Donbass, which was under terrific assault from Russia. But as long as Bakhmut stood, there was hope for the rest of Ukraine. Lately, however, he's been changing his tone just a little bit. He had already said that all that was left of the town was burnt ruins and corpses littering the fields. The Russian onslaught began in August. It was, in some degree, contact shooting, but mostly it had slowed down into trench warfare, the sort familiar from the First World War. Both sides were under such heavy artillery fire But they couldn't advance or retreat, so all they could do was dig in. The losses were horrendous. Russia was throwing into the field all the new conscripts that it could find. The whole assault was being led by the ruthless mercenaries of the Wagner Group. The losses among these conscripts were hundreds a day. But among the defenders too, the Ukrainians, the losses were in the high dozens every day. Meanwhile, within the town of Bakhmut itself, 60% of the infrastructure had been destroyed by one estimate. The streets were empty, save for burnt-out cars and foraging dogs and rubble from hundreds, thousands of collapsed and bombed buildings. And in fact, you very rarely saw inhabitants of Bakhmut at all. They might dash out to the odd shop, but in fact, they were hunkering down without power. There was no electricity, there was no gas, there was no piped water. They had to scoop their water out of the streams. If they had generators, they mostly wanted them to try to charge their phones and to keep warm. And they were spending their days huddled in what were called invincibility centers where they could get food and a bed for the night if they wanted it but a lot of them had gone down to their cellars where there was no ventilation you had to run up the stairs to get a gasp of air they had been told on several occasions to leave and indeed most people had a rough estimate there are about 5,000 left now those who stayed were the poor those who were too ill to move, the people who had to care for them, and mostly the stubborn, the ones who just said they couldn't imagine living anywhere else, who had all their wealth tied up in their houses, some who felt safer while Ukrainians were in charge of town, but some who felt the only hope and what they ardently wished for was for the Russians to take over. So they were a typically borderline city of mixed identities, mixed loyalties. They couldn't understand why the war had come to be focused on their city. Buckingwood wasn't strategic either, not particularly. There were two main roads crossing there, but it was not a logistics hub, not really. To most military strategists, looking at the Russian onslaught on Bakhmut, there was no military reason for it at all. It was all symbolic. The symbolism was actually that Russia couldn't afford another defeat after a humiliating run of losses. But it was equally important symbolically on the Ukrainian side. It could not afford to fall because as long as Bakhmud kept standing, as long as it was Fortress bakhmut it was a symbol of the resistance of Ukraine and it was an encouragement to Western allies to carry on sending weapons there. And that was why President Zelensky kept mentioning it in his nightly address. So for both sides, this city had to be fought over. It had to be fought over against all reason. Bakhmut, in fact, was already dead. There was no point in fighting over it. Those who won it in the end would have only ghost citizens and burnt ruins to face them.
0: Anro on the besieged city of Bakhmut just one casualty of the war in Ukraine. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow.